With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, Mom. Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Robert Cialdini wrote the Bible on persuasion. It's called Influence, and it has his six important things you need to know to persuade anyone of anything. And it's not like a BS book, like you can convince anyone of anything and make a million dollars. This is real, hardcore combination of both his research as a scientist and real practical examples. He has an updated version coming out with many more stories, many more examples, many more actionable techniques. And let me tell you something. I've read the book. I've also written a lot about persuasion. If you've seen my last book, Skip the Line, I have an entire chapter about persuasion. This book, Influence, is the real deal about persuasion. And Robert and I, our conversation was filled with not only explaining the concepts, plus his new concept that comes out in this book, but also many more actionable techniques that you'll hear today and you could use tomorrow to persuade people. And it's this stuff is so valuable. Like we live in a society where everybody's yelling at each other and the skills of persuasion are more important than ever. So here we go. Robert Cialdini, author of Influence. So I've got Robert Cialdini. Everybody knows him as the author of Influence and then later on, uh, Persuasion. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, James. Yes, again, I enjoyed it the first time. And and Robert, your book, Influence, I, I'm sure you probably realize this, but this has become the Bible, both for good and bad, for <laughs> basically every um, powerful marketer out there. And by powerful, I mean... There are, there are people in the advertising community who try to influence, but I don't, I don't consider that, they don't really use the principles in your book as much, but like copywriters who like, when you get those emails, like where four out of five doctors recommend this ED drug and Dr. Shavanigan has, was an expert on ED for 27 years. Like they're all using your book and they write about, they have conferences about how to use the principles in your book to, to write ads. I'm sure you know this. I do, and I am concerned about something that you said in passing, that the material can be used for good or ill. Right. And this is related to the updated edition of Influence, the book everybody has been waiting for. And in this book, one of the updated things you talk about is the ethical and unethical use of some of these techniques. Well, what drove you to make this updated version? What drove me was uh, the book has done very well. Um, 
it sold more copies than I could have sensibly imagined in many more languages than I could have guessed. I, for example, in, I have a Polish colleague, uh, Professor Wilhelmina Wosinska, who said, you know, Robert, your book, Influence, is so famous in Poland, my students think you're dead. <laughs> so that was, I thought to myself, hmm, that's an affirming yet sobering commentary on the material. I think it, there's, it's time to move uh, forward and update and elevate uh, what we know about the influence process. Yeah, and so, but but what, so there's, there's I want to go over all the principles again because I think it's good to update and and I've since learned more about them and maybe you have more thoughts about them. But a lot of the new stuff in this book is related. There's a big theme in this book about unity and tribe building, like the idea of creating for, for let's say two people who are arguing with each other, create a bigger tribe to put them in as a way to persuade them or to have one side persuade the other or whatever. And then another theme is, you know, looking at, at each technique and kind of the ethics and unethics of the technique again, like what, what made you think about the ethics of this? What were you seeing in society? Yeah, for precisely the narrative that you began with, that there you can see people using these things for ill. And uh, I didn't want to censor myself. How, how could a scientist, how could a researcher ever make a contribution by husbanding, uh, uh, by by holding on to the information. You can't do that. You can't make a contribution. So what you have to do is send it out in a way that allows people to see the ethical uses as superior to the unethical uses of it. So I, I make the case that uh, it's only through the building of uh, long-standing relationships that we get to be profitable over the long term using these principles in an ethical way. Yeah, and you know, I, I want to add also that these techniques, particularly when used together, work. And so, as an example, I had a, a, a course I was once selling about investing, and and I was disturbed by all the courses out there that I don't view as ethical. And and I made a course that was ethical. And I was working with a copywriter to write the letter describing it. And I didn't like his letter at all, in part because they used your techniques. <laughs> and what I mean is sometimes it's a little too obvious, I think, when people are using these techniques. Like, you have to act now. There's only limited available. And i like, how could it be only limited available if it's a PDF? There's infinite right. available. Right. Right. And so, so, but he said, okay, how about you write your version? And I'm, you know, I've sold lots of books. I'm a writer. I know how to write and I tell a good story, uh, but I'm not a copywriter. I don't know that yeah. they use your techniques almost like a formula. And so I write my version. This person wrote his version. We sent out to respective email lists that were about the same. You know, it wasn't a scientific experiment, but it had that kind of character. And I sold about 10% of what he sold. Your techniques work and they can be used for, it's like a superpower can be used. You have to use it responsibly. <laughs> Exactly. But it seems to me there are techniques for doing so, making it uh, ethical. For example, I claim that if all you do is point to the presence of one or another of these principles of influence. In this case, you were talking about scarcity. It isn't the case that there's only a limited number available. Do your uh, 
you know, choose now, press that button now, or you'll forever lose the opportunity. That's just not true. But what is true is that there's something unique about what you put in this that you don't get elsewhere in other courses on investing. There's something there that is uncommon and that they will lose unless they move in your direction. And if you just bring that to the surface, it seems to me that you're informing people into yeah. movement rather than tricking them there. And, and I think this is important to know because it goes beyond the, the ethics of it. It's actually more powerful when you view scarcity in an authentic way. Like instead of saying limited time only, you say, look, I'm doing this this one time because I feel strongly about what I'm seeing out there. So I put in the time and the effort to make something unique. That's why it's there's a scarcity component. Yes, and and the key and it'll there work was better the that word, way. Was the year was the word unique? You, that again, if you're going to harness the scarcity principle, the key word there is unique. You you can't get this anywhere else. This is a scarce commodity in terms of the ideas involved. There's nothing ethically objectionable about that right and i i think what happens is particularly like i feel like as i read this new updated version each technique strengthens when you really dig deep and ask yourself why you why does this technique work for me or could work for me like let's just start so you, you started off with six techniques in the original book influence you've added a seventh unity which i think is extremely powerful and I've, I've seen it in action uh, since we've had our first podcast. But let's, let's start with uh, technique number one, uh, reciprocity. Uh, the idea that if I do something for you, you do something for me. And the way I see this happen in advertising is, you know, you get a free gift when you come into our store. Oh, would you like a glass of champagne when you come into our right. high-end clothing store? You need a seat. Here it is. And so then people feel obligated to stick around and maybe buy. Right. That's the principle. It exists in all human cultures, the idea that you must give back the form of behavior that people have given to you. Otherwise, you're a moocher or a, te uh, you know, a, a, a cheater uh, or a freeloader. Uh, and so nobody wants the, those labels. And so they will give back. And that begins to cement relationships now when there are exchanges. But if, there, if this is used to trap people into assent, then you get resentment and resistance. So the way I like to think about it is to say, well, what is it I can, if I walk into a room and I'm looking uh, you know, to be more successful, I should not say to myself, hmm, who can help me here? I should say to myself, whom can I help here? Who's circumstances whose outcomes can I elevate here? And that will naturally cause people to want to give back to you. But you've begun the process by giving, which that doesn't harm anybody. It just puts people in mind of the fact that, oh, here's somebody I can partner with and get good outcomes. The other thing that I think is important about it is not to uh, make the mistake of dismissing when you really have been helpful to somebody by saying, ah, don't worry about it, no big deal, I would do it for anybody, when it wasn't true. You really went out of your, 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 your way to, to help somebody. I mean, in business, we hear it all the time. People say, oh, 
you saved my life by getting that payment restructured or getting that shipment early to me. And they say, thank you. And you say, ah, hey, don't worry. No big deal. Wrong. Wrong. What you should say is, if you have no previous experience with that person, look, I know if the situation were ever reversed, you do the same for me. Mm. You've just put them on record that this is an exchange. It's not that <laughs> that they are a vessel and you pour resources into them. That's the that's the way it is. No, it's an exchange. Or if you do have an existing relationship with those with that person, you say, "Look, it's what long-term partners do for one another." Right? Mm. So you just raise the the principle to consciousness, so it's sure to be engaged not just in one person's favor but both persons favor that's really interesting because i i have a problem with this i'm the type of person who says don't worry about it you know all's good uh happy to help and then later on i have a real hard problem asking for a favor of the same person i help but maybe like you just said bringing it to consciousness sort of is a very nuanced way of not asking for anything but just pointing out that, like right. like the Godfather, I may one day yes, need a favor it. from you. That's it, Jim. It, it's putting it on the map. Hmm. So it, when I tell people to say, look, I know uh, you, you do the same to me for me, I, I tell them to say not. You know, if the situation had been reversed, I know you'd do this, you would have done the same for me. I ask them to say if the situation were ever to be reversed, I know you'd do the same for me. You've put it on the map now. In that's the really future, powerful. there's an exchange that's due. That's all. You know, also, and this is a, like, I do find the champagne trick, like you go into a store and they give you a glass of champagne. I do find that to be very inauthentic. But, you know, someone was talking to me the other day about an idea for a restaurant where, um, connect the reservation system to the order system. So you know someone ordered a, a bottle of wine, a particular bottle of wine last time, then they make a reservation again, you get that wine or you get a nicer bottle and you give it as a gift to kind of keep them as a loyal customer to the restaurant and maybe they end up buying even a higher end bottle of wine. I find that to be authentic, Think you know, ideas and techniques like that. Yes, there's another side to the principle of reciprocation besides obligation, and that is it builds relationships. It creates exchanges, and when there are exchanges that people agree to, everybody benefits. The society is better off if people interact and exchange resources because you get all kinds of possibilities that didn't exist if you're just in your own bubble. Right. So one of the reasons societies enforce the, the rule for reciprocity is that societies are better off when people yeah. exchange reciprocally. You know, and it's interesting, you, you know, I don't think it was in this chapter, it was later in the book, there's the couple, because it's not just physical items that you exchange, but that you mentioned the story of this one couple that come up with 36 questions of disclosure as a way of, like, they ask these questions of each other and they get increasingly more personal um, as a way to build closeness and even love. I think vulnerability is a beautiful gift to give. 
that you know encourages reciprocity yeah be, so for example at the beginning of that list of questions the 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 item might be so uh what constitutes a nice day for you right or in the middle it might be and so what are the things that you're most concerned about these days and at the end the question might be of all the people in your family who would you be whose death would cause you the most distress right all of a sudden people are opening up to one another in this reciprocal fashion because the first person answers and then the second person has to answer in return provide that and in this studies using this list they find that this procedure produces love in the lab it produces wow. there have been marriages that have come out of people being in that exchange of reciprocal openness and vulnerability let me ask you, like, if you personally were at a social event and you didn't know anybody and you were feeling a little awkward, would you use ideas like this, you know, asking You've questions? You've just described me. You've just described <laughs> well, me. Well, I described me, really, which is why I'm asking. Yeah. Like, what would you do? How would you use this? Because what you're basically saying is that reciprocity authentically like this, and in this case with self-disclosure, improves the bonding and... What do you do when, when you're feeling awkward and need bonding with, with a group? Well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a, a, an answer that I used to use, and it's not related to reciprocity. I'll wait for the, to, the follow-up to do that. But I used to read people's palms. Mm. I would read their palms, and I would have a line of guests around the corner of the room i was in waiting to get this information from me which i would provide to them now i taught i was i was taught to read palms by a fellow graduate student a guy from india who was a palmist and he said compared to he was a he was a kindergartner compared to his guru right so i learned how to do this and i, and I would read people's palms and and eventually i stopped because it's phony there's nothing true there. If you ever do the research on it, it just, it's nothing. But it starts a conversation and it begins an exchange and you're giving people something. It was my icebreaker. So I don't do it anymore for the reasons you just mentioned. It's just not true. It's not ethical to, to, to give that information to people because it's, it's not accurate. So what I do is to use what's there in the situation. I say to, I reveal something about myself. You know, I'm awkward in these situations. It's something that's difficult mm. for me. How about you? And they might say, yeah, me too. But they might also reciprocate with, no, that's not my problem. I, I'm a, uh, I, I'm an extrovert. I'm an, and all of a sudden, and what about? But she, but I've got a sister who's like that. And, and all of a sudden, you're on a conversation with people about <laughs> them and their family. So, so that's what I do now. That, that's great. I love that. Um, so that's reciprocity. Oh, but I, I've been curious about this, actually. So Benjamin Franklin, in his famous example of persuasion, almost uses reverse reciprocity. Yes. He, gets, he gets someone, there's a legislator who hates him, um, and instead of giving something to this person, which might seem like pandering, he asks for something from this person. He asks to borrow a book. The person lends him the book. 
He returns it. A, Benjamin Franklin returns it a week later, and the guy loves him afterwards. Uh, what's what's going on there? It feels like reciprocity, but it's not quite reciprocity. It's a different principle. It's the principle of commitment and consistency. Ah, yeah. If right. I've just made a commitment to this guy, giving him one of my most valuable books and trusting that he will give it back to me, and then actually what Franklin says, he starts up a conversation with the guy about the book, right? Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. This is somebody I must value. I was willing to do this. Now I'm going to be consistent with that action that I undertook of giving him a book. You know, sometimes with these techniques, not yours specifically, but in general, when people talk about persuasion, I feel like it's very academic. And when I try to apply things in real life, like it doesn't quite work, but there's a, there's something about commitment and consistency, which works very well for me. I'll, I'll come, we'll come up with a hypothetical example. Let's say someone needs to get a raise from their boss. The person could ask for advice from their yeah. boss. What is the best way for me to ask for a raise from you? And then, and consistency kicks in it, it for me, this works like phenomenally well. Yes. Because another thing that Franklin said, people always value the wisdom of those who come to them with it for advice. <laughs> That's great. I did not know that, yeah. but that works. <laughs> I guess, but you know, cause a lot of these things are relating are related to status. So in that case, in Benjamin, in both situations, when Benjamin Franklin asked for uh, to borrow a book, he's giving status to the other person. So there's something there too, where if someone's at the receiving end of status, he will value continuing to receive that, that status from the person. That's right. And you also get the liking principle in there too, because you've given this person a compliment on his choice of books by, yeah. by asking for uh, a, a loan of it. So, so I want to, um, and I know I'm getting into the, some of the nuances and details, but I'm sure you've done a million interviews on the, the basics of these principles. So I'm, these are just things I've wondered over the years since we last spoke about James. I love it. All because right, good. <laughs> so many times in these interviews, we skate over the surface of this when there's such depth to it. There really is because take a giving a public talk. There's a danger of pandering. Like, let's say I tell the audience like, oh, I've never spoken in front of such a group of beautiful people before. That's like pandering as it, it seems like an inauthentic way of, of giving status to the other people. Like, oh, you're more, you're wiser and more beautiful than me. So such a pleasure to be talking to you. That won't achieve likability. Uh, comedians know this, which is why often they start off almost negging the crowd a little bit. That's exactly right. When I first started being a public speaker, there was a, an organization, it was a charitable organization. And I have this policy of every year I do uh, gratis talks for a charitable organization I, of my choice for that year. Right? And in this instance, they said, oh, great. Can you speak to us on this date? Yes. And they said, you know what we'll do? You're not asking for payment, but we have a member of our board who is a, a, a counselor to public speakers. He teaches public speakers how to improve their game. So he'll be at your talk, and then you'll be able to book a morning or an afternoon with him, and um, he'll tune up what your, your presentation. Okay, so I do the talk, and I spend a morning with this guy, and James, I can't remember a single thing he said except one. 
he said, you know, Cialdini, you have kind of a big mouth. Uh, the audience would be favorably disposed if you came on the stage and smiled broadly at them. Find a reason to smile broadly at them. Hmm. And that's what I do now. I find a reason because, oh, there's a friend of mine in the front row who I know will be uh, uh, positively inclined to this. Or I'm in San Francisco and I love San Francisco. Or this is an audience that hasn't heard my material before. And so they'll be especially receptive to anything that's new for them. And that gives me an authentic smile. To give. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because you just you just smiled twice. One is when you first said this word smile Broadway, you gave a demonstration. Yeah. And for those let's just listen to this, he smiled. And then the second time when you said, Oh, I have a friend in the audience, then you actually really lit up like and I yes. saw it all, all over your face. You're not the only one who can tell the difference between an authentic and an in, inauthentic smile. And so if I had done the first thing I said, oh, come on stage and smile broadly at it would be a phony smile they'd see it as opposed to a genuine smile that resonates with them as regards authenticity so so again i'm curious about the reverse of this like you know there are there are let's say another camp of persuasion quote unquote experts i don't really consider them that but but they do like like in the let's call it the dating field like the whole dating industry like oh i'll show you how to pick up a woman and then there's this whole concept of negging which is you subtly insult them lower their status so they want status from you and this seems like the opposite of of vying for likability and the opposite type of technique is of the smiling broadly what's going on with the sort of treating someone negatively in order to persuade them yeah you know i i've encountered those people in my lives like with bosses or mentors and you know who are who's best at this cult leaders mm. they establish themselves as the source of status that you need the source of validation that you need and that causes this clinging kind of response and if that's what you want to be, okay, fine. It's, I'm not going to choose it. I'm going to choose a better one than that, which is the single feature that has been shown on all kinds of dating sites, including quick lunch dating sites or um, uh, you know electronic. It's one thing, similarity. Hmm. The one thing that causes people to want to see somebody more is similarity use that find ask some questions find out some things about this person and when you come to a a connection a parallel use that to go deeper and explore the thing that you have in common there was a study of bargainers uh, who were bargaining by email. If they were first asked to send information about themselves back and forth before they began the negotiation, it reduced stymied deadlock negotiations from 30%, if you just went straight to the negotiation, to 10%, no, excuse me, 6%. Hmm. 
right? If you exchanged information. Now, here's the key for similarity. It wasn't the amount of information that was exchanged. It was whether in that amount of information a commonality was revealed. You're a runner? I'm a runner. You're, you, you've, you've got twins. I've got twins. You're an only child. I'm an only child. Whatever. It was the commonality that allowed people to give themselves grace in the negotiation. Well, the same thing in the romantic fields, that people want to know that somebody's like them because that validates them. And they like we like people who are like us. So, and I agree with you, like that even feels like a better approach. Why does the other approach sometimes work? Is it because the receiving side of that is insecure? Like they, they are used to being treated poorly, so it makes them cling or what, what's happening? Yeah, and, and I think this, so. I think mm -hmm. the, what you do is you tap into something that somebody feels about themselves. And then if you follow it with some sort of compliment, wow. Right, I see. Wow. So, so if you kind of take them from a low to a high, it's a greater range than someone who just starts at the commonality in some sense. Right. And so sometimes people are, are persuaded by the range of how you treat them. If yeah. It goes from poor to high. So like teachers do this too. You know, they say, you know, first day of class, you know, you people are pieces of shit. Three out of four of you are never going to graduate this class. Suddenly the students want to please the professor and be the one out of four who who follows the professor's every word. Right. And I guess this is related to your, your concept of authority. If you establish authority, and in this case, the institution does it for you, this is the professor and you're the student. If you establish authority, you could kind of, I don't, I don't know how to describe it. Is this an unethical use of that principle or like what's, I'm just trying a hard time, you know, understanding it. It might be, but it doesn't strike me as a productive one in the long term. Uh, there's a very famous uh, social psychologist, Carol Dweck, who talks about um, a, a major professor she had at Yale when she was in graduate school, big name, renowned guy, and she said something in a class, a small seminar, and he said, that's brilliant. She never spoke again because she was afraid of destroying her his view of her could she ever be that brilliant again right so it's just a wrong i don't i, I don't think that that's the way to produce the best uh, relationship with a partner where you they they rely on you for that and they don't show the best of them because they're afraid of disappointing you Ugh, bunk if you want that okay fine that's just not the best way to do it it seems to me there are other more collaborative, cooperative, mutually beneficial ways to do it. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And 
I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldercher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access 
to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use him from now Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. So like, let's say you're establishing authority and there's no institution behind you doing it. There's no one who labels you the professor and you the student. What's the best way someone could establish their authority on a topic that they want to persuade on without seeming like they're bragging. Yeah. So there's a couple of ways. Uh, let's say you're online. Uh, it is to identify and recruit the voices of genuine authorities who believe in what you are proposing that people do or buy or choose, right? So that you borrow the authority that you're entitled to. If this is a legitimately constituted expert who says this, you need to simply associate your idea honestly with the prestige that already exists, right? Secondly, um, if you do that, again, online, put that testimonial at the top, not in the body of your offer or your proposal, right? You want that authority to be infused throughout your message associated with this particular person, especially if that person has given a testimonial not just to your idea, but to you, right? To you. Well, now you get the honest benefit of that position but if you are the authority here's what i think you have to do you have to let people know about those credentials but not when you are presenting your case to them interesting you present you have them know about that before you present your case to them in a letter of introduction that you send. I look forward to speaking you with you on Wednesday on the topic of X. My background and experience on X are such. Or you put them in touch with your LinkedIn page or your resume and in print, they see your credentials. If you try to do it, you can't sit down with somebody and say, before we begin, let me tell you just how great I really am. Goes against all, all the rules. So, yeah, that's fascinating. Right. And the third way 
is to have a third party who knows both of you and ask that person to make the phone call or send a letter introducing you to the exchange. These are important nuances. Like knowing this could save a lot of people who could validly use this technique and influence. Right. So, you know, you know what this reminds me of? It's the exact technique that Google determines if a web page is should be in the in the top 10 of search results. Basically, if other important pages link to this page, then this page is probably important. Right. Let's talk about liking because likability is such an important is is an underserved principle I think in general. Like if you give a public talk, I find that no one really cares about the information you're talking about if they don't like you. <laughs> Even like if you're a public speaker and you're speaking to a bunch of strangers, the first thing you have to do is establish your likability. And and like and that's or let's say you're in a sales meeting and a, a bunch of people around the conference room What's your go-to approach to establishing likability? We've already talked about one of them. Genuine smile. Begin with a genuine smile. Right? Here's the other thing that I, t I tell people who say, if you have one piece of advice to give me as I start on my journey into the, the business world or the world in general, what would it be? And here's mine. When you go into a situation where you don't know people, it's a new situation, expect the best from them. Now, I'm not saying where you know these people and they're, you know, they're two-faced and they're cheaters. No, no, I'm not talking about deluding. Yeah. A new situation, you expect the best from them because it allows you to be generous with them. And by the rule of liking, they will like you for it. And by the rule of reciprocation, they will be generous to you. You know, they, um, and I know I have a lot of public speaking examples, but it seems like that's an interesting context because it's, it's largely strangers and you're speaking because you have something to say, some information to convey to them that they might not know, which is kind of a subset of persuasion. But I remember one time, and this, this worked very well, and I wonder if this fits into what you just said. I was doing a public talk, and I had reason to believe some percentage of the audience didn't like some things I had, I had read about their uh, written about their topic in the past. And so what I did was I started off the talk by saying, look, I could talk about three different things, and I'll let you, by, by the sound of your clapping, I'll, I'll let you decide what I'm going to talk about. And so I listed the three things and then I listed them again. And I said, clap now for the one you want me to talk about. And, and I kind of knew which one they would pick anyway, but I gave them this choice and the talk went amazing. Like all, they all oh, love man. the talk because I guess it's consistencies at work there, but also likability. It's likability, but it's also something you said earlier. You, you assigned them status. Mm. You gave them standing. Right, so that you were going to listen to them and respond to them. Okay, I, I, here comes another story, James. Okay, yeah, I, go, I love the, I love this 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 interaction that we're having. Yeah. So when I first started uh, doing research on the topic of influence, it was in my laboratory with college students on college campus. I wasn't really getting evidence of where the big effects were that I thought would be there in the training programs 
of the influence professions of our society, right? The salespeople, marketers, advertisers, fundraisers, recruiters, and so on. So I started answering ads for trainees incognito with uh, disguised intent, uh, disguised identity, and and uh, and I would take the training from them and learn what they knew about how to get people to say yes. And across it all, I was looking for the commonalities, which were the things that were in common, no matter which training program I was in. And there were just these six. That's where the six principles came from. Just wow, these six. There were hundreds of tactics, but all of them could, the majority of them could be uh, categorized in, in one or another of these six universal principles. Okay, so now I had this information, but to be ethical and professionally responsible, I had to get their approval to use what they told me for my book, right? I can't just take it from them and use it. So I geared myself up for asking them to allow me in a, on a writ, with a written document for approval to use what I learned from their training programs in my book. And I knew this was going to be a tough sell because this was proprietary information. They spent a lot of years coming to this information and they didn't want their competitors to know and they didn't even want their customers to know sometimes what they were doing. Yeah. So I thought, okay, I'm going to use the principle of reciprocity on them. All right. I said to them, actually, I'm not Rob Calden. I'm not a, a, somebody looking for a job in your industry. I'm Robert Cialdini. I'm writing a book about the influence process, and I... And I said I was a, 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 a trainee because I wanted to get this information. And I started to see faces fall, you know, and I said, but here's what I will do. I promise you, if you'll, if you'll allow me to use the information, even if you don't, I'm going to send, e I'm going to send you a pre-publication copy of the book so you will know what I've found Right about how the influence process works, how the persuasion process works, before your competitors ever get a chance to buy the book. Right? It had a positive effect, but half of the people were still giving me these frowns because all the gain was going to be mine, all the loss was going to be theirs, right, in this proposal. And then I said, and, and, and they said, but what are you what are you going to use this for? What is this? And I said, well, I'm a university professor, and I and and I teach persuasion and social influence, and I want to write a book on the topic. And they leaned back in their chairs. They said, "Wait a minute, you're a university professor, and we're your teachers." <laughs> I said, "Yes." And they puffed up their chests and waved their hands and said, of course you can use our mastery of this material. <laughs> I gave them standing. Yeah. No, it's interesting how all the, these things interlink a bit. So yeah. it's like, you know, all, you gave them authority, yeah. but you, got, you established likability, you used reciprocity. Um, they're all, it's all, there's, weaving these together is, is very powerful. 
This one is used and quoted. This is, every copywriter in the world uses this social proof, yep. which is basically throughout the 40 page sales letter. And, you know, Jackie W said this about the program and, you know, so-and-so said this and it's, you know, over and over again, social proof. It's very powerful. It's basically testimonials. Right. But they come not from experts in this case, they come from your peers. So mm. I'm actually calling this peer persuasion, right? Mm. So persuasion. And, and uh, that's very powerful because it gives you uh, an, a, an opportunity to reduce your uncertainty as to what you should do in the situation based on what the people around you like you are doing or have done there. They've they beta tested the, the action for you and and you can see whether it makes sense for you uh you certainly see it with the review sites the number of stars that you you know you can uh, get, gather on a site here's a very interesting feature of it though there's a particular sweet spot of number of stars that are most likely to create a conversion to your product or service. And it's not five stars. It's 4.2 to 4.7 stars. Right, you mentioned that, that, that above 4.7, people don't believe it. And then actually one star reviews are good because they feel authentic. There's, that's right, that you're not screening them out. Yeah. Right, so, but anyway, th that's certainly one thing. Another thing you can do, again, ethically it seems to me, is take the cue of a study that was done in Beijing, China, where restaurant managers in a string of, uh, of restaurants put a little asterisk next to certain items on the menu. Uh, and each item then went up 13 to 20% in purchase. Right. So what did the asterisk stand for? It didn't stand for what you usually see. This is one of the specialties of the house. Or this is our chef's recommendation for the evening. If you read any of these Kitchen Confidential books, you know the chef's yeah. special is what was left over from the night before that he has to get rid of. Right? Ah. It didn't say that. It said, this is one of our most popular items. And each item became more popular for its popularity. Social proof, right? What other people around me are choosing informs me as to what I should choose. Right? Now, what was lovely about this is that it was all true. They just never used it before, right? Well, we all have most popular some things. You probably have most popular... Uh, sessions that you can sell. You can, other people have most popular features of what they have to offer, most popular models, most popular payment plans. You just have to tell people what's most popular and they stop dithering around. They stop sitting on the fence and they choose it. That's That's really interesting. Even though it's sort of directly saying, hey, these things are great that I cook. So it feels like a little bragging there, but just using the star as an explanation rather than going too deeply into it avoids the, um, the oversell. And it's costless. 
Mm. You you don't have to hire somebody like a copywriter to write some florid description of that dis, that dish, right? You don't have to spend that money. Right, you just have an authority figure, put a star. You put a star there. This, but the authorities are, in this case, your peers. These right, are the because most... they're saying, right, you're saying the data is showing this is popular, yes. not the chef is saying this is popular, the data right. is showing, like the other people like it. This is also related to the new concept in the, or the quote-unquote new concept in the book the about unity and the tribe building, which is that um, if, you know, let's say there's um, Arabs and Jewish people who don't get along, uh, by by reframing them as a single peer group, like, look, you're, you're, you, you're Arab, you're Jewish, but you both have cancer. And these five people who have cancer got cured using this. Um, that's, uh, you know, by reframing people and building a tribe when there isn't normally a tribe and, and maybe making it a higher stakes tribe, that's a powerful technique. There's even another one in which they simply point to the fact that there's a high degree of genetic overlap between Arabs and Jews. Yeah, Semitic. They're all Semitic. Yeah. That causes them to be more willing to give concessions to the other side in negotiations. It's interesting. You know, it, it also, again, I've, I've seen it work in public speaking. Like, you know, let's say you do a little kind of interacting with the crowd in the beginning and you realize, this group on this side of the audience is from Paris, and so is this group. You could say you could just make jokes like, "Oh, you guys should exchange phone numbers and maybe start dating each other." You just like <laughs> humor them. Yeah. But you know, as long as you try build, you're going to be successful. Right. You know, uh, I, the book has been successful in other languages, and one of them uh, is uh, Italy. Another is Poland. And uh, whenever I'm in Italy, I tell people, before we begin, I'm so happy to be in my, the homeland of my grandparents. Immediately, I see a difference in the audience. Their faces change. If I'm in Poland, it turns out I grew up in an entirely Italian family in a predominantly Polish neighborhood, right? In Milwaukee, right? A historically German city, right? So... If I say to to people I, I I'm, I'm, I'm if I'm in Italy I tell them that if I'm in Poland I say you know, all my friends were named Kamenowski and Robleski and and, and, and uh, you know these Polish names I was 11 years old till I realized that Cialdini wasn't a Polish name. Same thing happens. Faces change. I'm one of them. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. So, I perform stand-up comedy and one time i was in cincinnati and i asked around like what's popular local things and i found that there was this one small chain of chili restaurants that was only in cincinnati and it was like these enormous portions they would give and i before i went to perform i ate some of this chili so the first thing i talked about was you know this chili and i was honest about it i said you know the portions were enormous wasn't my favorite, but I could get addicted to it just because I love eating the portions. Like I would never be hungry again. <laughs> yeah. And they all appreciated it. Even the fact that there was aspects that maybe it wasn't the best. It was just, it was theirs. That, that's why they went because it was right. a lot of food, cheap and still right. pretty good. You know? So they, there yeah. was a link with you. <laughs> it, it, yeah. It, that's why I'm saying these, these work and it's, it's yeah. funny. There's the principles and there's the tactics and yeah. you know, it's, it's, 
you know, I always get worried. I'm going to read a principle, but I'm going to miss, I'm going to over prescribe the, it, I'm, I'm going to see too much of it in a tactic. Um, whereas sometimes I have to really think, am I bullshitting myself or am I really using this technique? You know, that's important. You asked why I revised the book after 14 years. And one reason is I realized that I was principle heavy and not implementation heavy enough when I talked about the principles previously. I think that's extremely valuable in this one. This one now is, is going to be the new Bible of influence. Uh, and believe me, every marketer has this book. I mean, I'm sure you know that. Scarcity. This technique is interesting because it's like we talked about before, it's either overused or inappropriately used. I like you comparing scarcity to uniqueness. That's an interesting view. I always think of scarcity as there's only five tickets left right. by now. <laughs> and so, but, but uniqueness, but, but like they can still say with uniqueness that, okay, let's see how everybody else thinks about it before I get into this. Cause they, they don't, they still don't feel anxiety that I, they have to buy something now. Like if you go in a clothing store and there's only three sweaters left that you like, and the salesperson saying, yeah, these have been selling fast then you feel real scarcity. Right, and that's because of uh, the competition facet that comes with limited number. There are two major forms of scarcity appeals. One is limited time, right? You only have so many uh, days until this is no longer uh, available or on sale or whatever. Or you only have this many left. In the in this many left, you're in competition with people for it. If you don't move now, it might be gone. It might be lost to you. And, the, and loss is the element that makes scarcity work. The, the fear of loss. You know that acronym FOMO, fear of missing out? Yeah. That's what scarcity is all about. If things are scarce, rare, dwindling in availability, you might lose access to these things. And we hate loss. This is the major contribution of, uh, of prospect theory, uh, something that won uh, Daniel Kahneman the Nobel Prize in economics, that people are more mobilized into action by um, avoiding the loss of something than by the prospects of, that, of, of missing something than by the prospects of gaining that thing. And uh, let me give you a, an example. I'd be curious as to what you think of the ethics of this. But okay. I have a friend who's an, a, a divorce attorney, but also a, a mediator between divorcing couples who don't want to go to court and have to deal with all the expenses uh, of that. So they go to her as a mediator, and what she does is put them in separate rooms and she shuttles between them and tries to find a middle ground where they can come to a, a final mutual agreement on the, the, the features of the settlement. Uh, but she says very often they get one dimension on which they will not concede or compromise and it often torpedoes the whole process and they wind up in divorce court and she says what can i do when i have this last thing and i bring it to the attention of the other party and this one person says well this is what i'd be willing to do and and she says to the other party 
if you will accept this offer, we will have a deal, right? And often it doesn't work. So I suggested a small change based on loss aversion, right? And that is that she says, we have a deal. All you have to do is accept this offer. And I saw her at a party like a few months later. She came up to me. She said, Bob, this is amazing. This works every time. I said, Sandy, come on. This is behavioral science. It's not magic. It do- nothing works every time. She put her hand on my arm. She said, every time. Now, I still don't believe that it works every time. But here's the key. If we have a deal, now you're losing it if you say no. Right. That's interesting. Gaining something is not as interesting as losing something. If you look at Daniel Kahneman's data, loss aversion is twice as powerful as obtaining a gain, the same gain. Earlier, we were talking about uniqueness and how that's related to scarcity. And it seems like when you describe something that's unique, it's even more powerful with scarcity because you make them think, hmm, if this is unique, it might be scarce. Other people might want this. Right. And and so that gives, rather than just saying only five left, you might say this sweater in the clothing store, this sweater is made handcrafted by, you know, this famous artist. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so then the person will think, wow, that's, that's probably going to go fast. It's just thinking in their head. So if you can kind of give them clues that this might be scarce, that seems to work even better. You know, I hadn't even thought about that, but I think you're right. So I wonder, I wonder then how, you know, you know, again, really thinking what makes something special and then somehow giving them the feeling, you know, you uh, authentically, this is so special. Others are going to want it. And then some resource of either time or spots or whatever. Like if you say, if you're selling real estate and you say, look, this is an island They can't build any more apartments or houses. And then you leave it at that. They might think, okay, supply and demand, supply is never going to go up because it's an island. There's limited borders. So it's, so it's scarce. I think that's right. I mean, the, the extent to which you put restrictions on access to anything, people want it more. Uh, When, when car manufacturers build a special model with only a certain number of uh, of instances in which they've manufactured it, the value of it goes up significantly. Yeah, that's why even like prints of art sell if they're numbered, which I always found to be a weird thing. Like, why can't I just make a, my own print of this? Yeah. But somehow that, <laughs> that uniqueness though yeah. is what gets me. Um, I think we've spoken about the basic six I mean, commitment and consistency, I, I think that's an extraordinarily powerful one because, and particularly as related to status, because if you, if you give someone status, like asking for advice, they've got, and they give you advice, they're not going to give you bad advice because you just, you're trusting them. And then they've got to follow through on the advice or they, or they realize they're the type of person who gives advice to this person. So, yes. and they're also and they, a partner with this person. There's a, a, a quote when, when you're looking for advice, you're actually looking for an, an accomplice. <laughs> hmm. the, and, and here's what the research shows. That's a great quote. If you get this, if you get the advice, you get the accomplice. 
because people feel partnership with you in the information they've provided. Let's say you're now, you're not just persuading one-on-one, you're, you're marketing. So you're, it's one to a huge number. How does, uh, and, and you mentioned the examples of companies like Amazon and so on. I guess you could advance, ask for advice from a large group of people, yep. like in the public speaking example. Companies can do it in what they call co-creation, where they ask their existing uh, customer base or their prospective customer base, what would you like to see in our next model? Or what were the features of our current model that you would like us to retain and which would you like us to to delete you know those kinds of questions how can we improve uh your level of satisfaction right and the key is not to ask for that feedback by saying please give us your opinion about this when you ask for an opinion you get a critic mm. when you mm. ask for it ad- for advice you get a partner and there's research on this you ask for feedback on the very same proposal this turned out to be a business plan for a new kind of restaurant half of the people this was an online uh study were asked for their opinion asked for their advice on this business plan and those asked for advice were more positive toward it because they felt more a part of the plan. Yeah, like the, the accomplice theory yeah, you, you mentioned. The accomplice. So how do, if someone asks you for advice, now this is the opposite side of it, how do you avoid being an accomplice? Let's say someone asks me for advice, but I really don't want to be an accomplice. I don't really want to be biased simply because I gave advice to someone. Um, how can you avoid this? And, and Daniel Kahneman's point of view is that you really can't avoid cognitive bias in these situations, but is there a way knowing that the princi- these principles exist? Yeah, I, I again, one of the things that I do at the end of every chapter in the book, if you recall, is I have a defense section, how to say no to these principles, right? And one of the things that I say in, in, uh, in almost every instance is step back from the situation where you recognize that a technique is being employed on you, use that as your signal. It's a flag. Step back from the situation and respond based on the merits of the situation, what you want to do there, what you want to convey, what you want to give, and so on. And so in that situation, if I were you, I would step back and say, well, let me give you my opinion on this. So I'd reform mm. it in terms of the opinion. So I would be able to go inside and provide a positive and negative view of it, the pros and cons, rather than just feeling sucked into being <laughs> an accomplice. Right. And I guess I guess awareness <laughs> of the techniques is important to know yeah. that there's a technique employed. Like sometimes you know, you, I used to have a boss, this is like 20 years ago, where every time I would have dinner with him, I'd get home and I would feel bad about myself. So somehow status was being withdrawn from me during the dinner somehow. And I couldn't understand why, but it just turned out to be not a healthy boss employee relationship. And, 
And it's important to kind of, there's some self-awareness that it's important. It took me a long time to realize this, but I just, that I just, it was a common thing. I kept feeling bad about myself every time I interacted with this person. And so it's important to kind of do an audit of your feelings at different points to see what you're being drawn to. And I guess it must be much harder though, if you're feeling great about your status, maybe that's too good. If somebody comes on as so likable and you're just, you know, uh, flowing with the interaction, ask yourself, do I like this person more than I should at this moment? I've known this person here at the mm. party for 30 minutes. What's what's going on? Right, This salesperson who's selling me a Oh, yeah. He gave me a Coke. He said he grew up where my wife grew up. He, he complimented me on my uh, selection. Uh, wait a minute. I have to remember I'm be I'm going to be driving the Toyota off the lot not him. Right. <laughs> Separate your feelings for this person from your the merits of the deal. Separate it from the deal. It's it's so important. I remember just a, a one time I bought like 50 magazine subscriptions from some guy going door to door. And after, I remember at, and then I never got the magazine. So it's classic. But, uh, I remember right after I bought all these subscriptions from this guy, I remember talking to my wife and saying, boy, he was so smart. I really liked him. If he lived around here, we would all be friends and hang out. Yeah. Like, and then I bought all these magazine subscriptions and it was a ripoff. Like I never got yeah. them, but I fell for that because I wasn't aware. Sometimes you just need awareness of these things just so you don't fall for them. You know, that's why I'm glad that there were only seven of them that I counted. We don't have a long compendium of these things we have to examine every time we're in a... No, they're just seven. You can remember seven. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's, it's important. And again, um, uh, you know, it's... It's not like like when you go to the Wikipedia page for cognitive biases, there's like a hundred different yeah. cognitive biases yeah. and you feel like you have to remember them all. But you're right. These are seven. And again, they are all linked. And, you know, again, they, they remind me of, I'm going to, it just made me think, there's something called the, the four U's of, cop, of influence, uh, which is a, a model for copywriting, um, which people use to market these. Uh, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find that real quickly. And see if or see if I can. Yeah. Master the six U's to perfect perfectly pitch an idea. Urgency, unique, useful, ultra specific, user friendly, and unquestionable proof. And so these are all related to your principles. Like user friendly is likable, ultra specific and unique, and urgency is all scarcity. Uh useful is probably the social proof. Unquestionable proof is authority. Authority. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um so yeah, these are, are useful. And again, I liked how in this, you gave so many specific instances of these principles at work. You, uh, the unity one is incredibly important. If you can, if you can find a way to fit people into the same tribe as you, things are going to happen. Good things will happen. All barriers to influence come down inside our we groups, the people we count as we. You know, I was, <laughs> I, I, I tell this in the book, it was, uh, uh, I grew up in Wisconsin and my, the NFL football team in Wisconsin, the home team has always been the Green Bay Packers. And uh, I saw an article recently 
that said that there are two celebrities, big Packer fans, both musicians. Immediately, I thought better of their music. Yeah, that's interesting. And I wanted them to have more successful careers. Well, they, that's interesting. They but... were Packer fans with me. So, so, so here's, here's a question. So there, as we all know, there was a woman in the nineties who wrote a book about a little boy abused by his family, lived in the closet under the stairs, who then found out he was a wizard, perhaps the greatest wizard ever went to Hogwarts school and, you know, Harry Potter, the rest is history, sold a billion copies of the book or JK Rowling's a billionaire, but there's been other, someone told me the other day, the number of series that have had the exact same plot almost to, to a T that weren't successful. So what do you think makes some things like that stand out as opposed to others now? And I was thinking maybe it's because she has a, a story behind the story. She was a divorced woman living on welfare. She had a child. So we kind of relate to her. We feel sorry. We feel like that could be me. And maybe that was the key. I mean, there's some even like famous authors, successful authors have written similar plots and just weren't successful with that. I've read the Harry Potter books and I think I know what it is, what she does so well, better maybe than anybody. She creates mysteries and puzzles to be resolved, but only if you keep reading. Mm. You're so hooked by the need for closure. I mean, this is how we're built as a species. When we have something that's a puzzle, a poser, a, a mystery, something we something that's unresolved, we it doesn't leave us alone until we resolve it. And but it we, has to be done carefully, though. Uh, and she does. I mean, that's the difference. I think she was just a, a past master at it. Uh, of always bringing us along by leading us to solving the next problem or puzzle or difficulty that had to be surmounted when there didn't seem to be any way to do it. That's so, so interesting. So, and again, like, like one time I was doing a podcast with someone in front of a, a live audience and I kept asking questions, you know, I'd read the book. I kept asking questions related to the, the book and rather than answer them, most of the time he would say, well, you have to read the book for that. I can't oh. tell everything here. Oh. Um, and that didn't work. Oh. So, so, so uh, eliciting, you know, almost forced mystery. Like I didn't want to read it after he kept saying that. And I didn't feel like anybody else was interested in the audience. Yeah. I mean, he punished you uh, yeah. for having that need for closure. No, we don't want people who punish us for anything. <laughs> would you say, does this fit under one of the principles? Kind of like almost having cliffhangers throughout a, a persuasion process well uh i mean it's uh, there's no there's no uh principle that i know of except in the um the book i wrote called persuasion where people if you begin with a mystery you begin with some sort of fact that doesn't seem to make sense People need they, they you've persuaded them to read on, mm. right? Uh, right, you're totally right. Like I'm reading a book right now. It's called "The Girl with a Louding Voice," and it's about a, a young girl growing up in Nigeria with certain 
issues and problems. And at the beginning of each chapter is exactly that. There's a fact about Nigeria that you know will somehow end up in the chapter. So you read on because how is this obscure fact about how much champagne Nigerians drink yeah. is going to relate to this chapter? Yeah, that's I, I hadn't seen that, but that's a good example. I, I used to use it when I would teach in my classes. I would begin the class with a, a, a puzzling aspect of human behavior. And then at the end, I, and I would say, if you understand the rest of this lecture and really pay attention to it, by the end, you'll be able to solve the mystery, right? Ah. Well, when I was first doing it, I got the timing wrong for one of the mysteries, and the bell rang, and, you know, normally when the bell rings, people are, poof, out the door. In fact, before the bell rings, five minutes before, they're... they're packing up their laptops and putting away their pens and papers, waiting to be poof out the door. Instead, the bell rang and I said, okay, so I guess I'll have to wait to the, uh, till next time to solve the mystery. They said, no, we're not leaving until you... I thought to myself, Cialdini, you've stumbled on dynamite here. Yeah. Do you remember what that mystery was? Now I want to know. <laughs> Uh, it was why the cigarette companies um, banned their own ads on TV uh, back in the 60s, where they no longer would uh, advertise on TV. They, they made a pact among themselves. And the reason was it had to do with something uh, that was true at the time, back in the 60s, and that is when you... Uh, promoted some idea in a public forum about which there was uh, controversy, you had to let the other side get advertising time for free to counter your position. And when the cigarette companies then had to pay for the American Heart Association and Lung Association and Cancer Association to do counter ads, their sales plummeted. So they banned their own ads so that by the, what's called the uh, equality of information, right? Now, the Cancer Society didn't get any free ads and they, could, they didn't get any counter arguments. And their sales went back up. You know what that re reminds me of? And I, I wonder if this is related, but like in, in a relationship, uh, so I, I had a relationship like a decades ago and we were always arguing and my therapist at the time said, listen, you got to remember one thing, always let the other person have the last word. Don't try to have the last word yourself. And I never really understood why that's the case. But maybe it's uh, it's similar here. Once the cigarette companies stopped advertising, the uh, the American Lung Association Association had the last word, their very last ad that never aired again. That's right, and it would end the argument. And the end of the argument. The argument's over. Now, now we're just going to give you, that particular argument was over. But we're going to give you images of happy people smoking and f being free and uh, stylish and so on. That's what they were doing. It had nothing to do with the argument. It just had to do with the associations to cigarette smoking that they were able to give us. Hmm. Well, 
Robert, once again, this has been so illuminating and your book influence. I've probably thought about it no less than 10,000 times since we last spoke, because it really is so important in everyday life and everything we do. People underestimate you need, even if you're the best in the world in some field, you need influence and persuasion skills to let other people know your ideas or else they won't listen to you. This is so important. And your book is, you know, the go-to book. These, the, I've seen it with my own eyes. I've used these techniques. This works. And, uh, this updated version is so much more comprehensive and really helps me understand all the principles that much more. Plus your new principle with unity. I've, I've seen it in action and particularly in public speaking or, or in sales meetings when there's me and 12 people around a table and I've got to try build somehow that unity you've put the word to it now, but it, it really works. And so, and, and this discussion about the, the ethics of it. And I think being in touch with who you are deep down and making sure that's the scarcity, your, your, your own uniqueness, yeah. I think is really important. And thank you once again for, for coming on the podcast and, and helping me understand all this and helping the listeners understand it. James, as in the past, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Excellent. Thanks, Robert. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.